In our morning series, we are going to begin making our way through the letter of James. James is a relatively short book of the Bible. It's just five chapters uh, long. It's, it's the first book that I can remember as a teenager uh, sitting down and, and actually being able to read it all at one uh, shot. It's a book that's filled with illustrations, both biblical illustrations. Uh, they're found from the Old Testament. James often uses uh, the Old Testament to illustrate a point, but it's also filled with illustrations from the world, from nature, from uh, commonly used and known objects. The book of James is a book that is filled with commands. There, there's command after command after command calling the readers, Christians, ultimately the church, to live in a certain way. This is a book that will call us as Christians, as the Lebanon Bible Fellowship Church, to live in a certain way because of our relationship with our Lord. And, and my prayer as we enter into this study of this book is that within the life of our church, that the Lord would use this book to refine and to change the way we are living our lives over the next couple of months. So if you're not there already, I'd ask that you turn to the book of James with me, uh, to the passage that Pastor Herb just read for us. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 will be our text for this morning. And as you can see, as Pastor Herb read for us, uh, we are beginning uh, right at the beginning of the book. We are starting with the, the very introduction to the letter of James. And then uh, we are going to enter into the first topic that James addresses uh, in this letter. And we're going to take both of these things together as we are going to see that this greeting, so how he begins in verse 1, flows very, very nicely into the first topic that James chooses to address first in his letter. So our theme for James chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 is this. The letter of James opens with the author, the recipients, and appropriately addresses the first subject of the letter. So our theme is the letter of James opens with the author, the recipients, and appropriately addresses the first subject of the letter. So we'll consider first the introduction, which comes from James chapter 1 verse 1. If you look with me there, I'll read this for us again. James 1.1 begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So the first thing I want us to notice from verse 1 from this introduction is what genre this book of the Bible is. What type of writing is the book of James? This verse makes it very clear, and it might just be very clear to us as we open up this book, as we call it, an epistle, or in more modern language, it's a letter. And I point this out, and it seems like a simple point, but I point it out to get us to begin to think about this book of the Bible as a very personal piece of writing. An author was writing to a specific people. The things that are said in this letter are not impersonal commands. It's not just a rule book. It's not just scattered verses to memorize but the words that make up this book are a, lit a letter written from one person to others. And in God's providence and working, this letter is also written to us. We weren't the original recipients, but this, this letter is not only a letter to, to someone else hundreds of years ago, but it's a letter to us. It's an inspired letter. It's scripture, and it has a message for us that we'll be hearing today and in the months to come. Second, as we consider this introduction, we'll consider the author of the letter. If you look again at James 1.1, 1, 1, 
First thing we read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to first look at who this was. It begins, James. James, and then James goes on to say nothing else that would clue us in to who exactly this James was. There were several Jameses in the New Testament, or, or we read about several in the New Testament, but there's two in particular that would have had the prominence and, and they would have had the authority to write such a letter. And, and I want to really bring this out and I want to make this clear to us is I think it's important for us not to just skip over this and say someone named James and move on, but I think it's important for us to try and figure out who exactly this James is as I think we'd all agree, if you receive a letter in the mail, you want to know who wrote it to you. It changes the message within uh, that letter. It impacts how you read the things that are said. I received a text message uh, several weeks ago from a number I didn't have, so I didn't know who it was that was texting me. But shortly after they, they greeted me, they said hi, shortly after that they said who it was. And it changed the rest of the message for me. It, it allowed me to know who was writing this, and it, it changed uh, after they identified themselves. And so too with this letter, I think it's important that we try to figure out who exactly this James was. So there's two possibilities, as I said. The first is the James who was one of the 12, John's brother. So one of Jesus' 12 disciples is an option here. The second option is James Jesus' brother. Jesus had a brother named James. Well, the James who was one of the twelve was killed in the book of Acts in, in chapter 12 by King Herod. And, and this book of James is believed to be written after this time. So James, one of the twelve, he died, so he is no longer an option as this book is believed to be written after his death. So that leaves us James who was Jesus' brother. And, and we find in the New Testament that he certainly had a position in the early church where he had prominence, he had authority to, to write a scriptural letter. During Jesus' earthly ministries, ministry, we are told that his brothers, Jesus' biological brothers, did not have faith in him. In John 7, verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. That's referring to Jesus. So at one time, James, his brother, did not believe that his brother, Jesus, was the Christ. And though uh, in the New Testament we own the specific account, it's made very clear to us that, that James was converted. He did place his faith and trust in his brother, Jesus, as his Lord and his Savior, as we find in the book of Galatians, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read two passages for us. There's, there's a couple of other passages we could look at in the book of Acts, but I want to read for us two passages in Galatians that show us that James became a very vital part of the Jerusalem church. So in the book of Galatians, as Paul writes the book of Galatians, he's portraying his own conversion, and he says this in Galatians 1, verses 18 through 19. It says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then later in Galatians, Galatians 2.9, Paul's still referring to James, Jesus' brother. He says, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, 
perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So he says, when James, Cephas, and John, who seem to be pillars, pillar gives us, gives us a very graphic, uh, illustrative uh, language here of a, of a column that supports that holds up a, a house or a building, showing that James, Jesus' brother, along with Peter and John, had an important role in, in both supporting but also helping maintain the church. Paul is speaking of a position of leadership within the church here, that James held a, a unique and important leadership position among the early Christians. So James, Jesus' brother, would have been one who could have written such a letter as we have with the book of James. So the author of the book of James is Jesus' very own brother. And as I began by, by considering James and who this is, I said he, he doesn't clue us in. He doesn't uh, give us specifics as to who he is. He just says James, and that's it. And as you think about this, this background of what I just said or who I just said um, this author is, it's a bit surprising that he would just say James and then move, us, move on and, and not give us any specifics. It's surprising that he wouldn't say James, the brother of Jesus Christ. Or even considering his role in the church, we might have expected him to say, James, the brother of Jesus Christ and the leader of the Jerusalem church. But that's not how he identifies himself in this letter. Look at how he identifies himself. Look again with me at James 1.1. He says, James... And then he says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James identifies himself in a way that is completely unexpected. James identifies himself literally as a slave. That's what the word in verse 1 is translated. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James portrayed himself as someone who was owned by another who was owned by God, meaning that he realized his life was not his own. He couldn't live how he wanted. He saw his life as not about him or serving himself, but serving his master. We see that then that James began his letter not by talking about himself, not showing his qualifications, not including his prestigious role in, in the church, or not including his connections to try and impress his readers, but he began his letter by showing that he was a humble representative of God. James provides an excellent example of humility to start out this letter. So the letter of James might not be readily seen, but it, it starts with humility, especially considering what he could have included, what would have certainly impressed, or even if you think about if someone found out that Jesus' brother wrote this letter, they would have been attracted to this letter, but James chose to direct the attention to someone else other than himself, and that is God. And in so doing, I said it's an example, and even it's an example to his readers. As in James 3.13, you can just flip two chapters over. In James 3.13, he says this. He calls them to do something. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The word meekness speaks of humility. It speaks of not being caught up with yourself or, or the thought or the great thoughts you have of yourself, but thinking about others, thinking about God. So James shows, 
He practices what he preaches. He starts off with humility here, and then he's going to call his readers to humility later on in the letter. He sets an example right at the start of this letter of what he later would call these Christians to do. And I believe James stands as an example to each and every one of us in this room as well. As If you think about your life and you're real with yourself, we're tempted to get people to notice us. We want people to see our accomplishments. We want them to know the roles that we fill. We want people to be impressed with us. But we see from James, this is not how we are to operate. We're placing ourselves in a position that only God deserves, saying, look at me, look at what I have done, rather than doing what James does here, and he states his name, and then he shows his position in relation to God, showing he is but a slave, he, his life belongs to God. God is high. He is low. God is the master. He is the servant. should be an example to each and every one of us. But there also lies a lesson for leaders. If we think of the fact that James was a called leader of the church, he was someone who became one of the main, maybe one of the top three leaders in the early church. So we find then that even a leader of the church should see themselves as only a servant, a slave for God. So elders of this church, leaders within this church, who lead in various ways, we cannot walk around as if we are the master. But though we're called to lead, though we're called to oversee and to direct, we are but slaves of God. James is an example to us. And then lastly, as we consider the author, we'll consider how he viewed God. Look with me at James 1.1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a statement both of James's beliefs, but also it communicates to us the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. In one breath, in the same sentence, he claims that he is the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James, in, in putting them in the same line, he is counting them as one and the same. Further, he calls Jesus Lord, which usually only referred to God. So if we think about James's past, he went from rejecting Jesus as God to now calling him Lord in Christ and speaking of him in terms of being God. This is the one whom James has devoted and dedicated his life to. This is his master. So if there's someone here this morning that you may be in the same position that James once was, rejecting Jesus as Lord. James is a testimony, and even in the letter of James, it's a testimony of how God can work in your heart to bring you from rejecting him to doing what James did here, to claiming, as James did, that he was a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the author of the book of James, Jesus' very own brother. Very humble introduction to himself. So we'll move third in this introduction to the recipients. The recipients of this letter. If you look with me at James 1.1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here are the recipients who he's writing to. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. By referring to them as the twelve tribes, it seems that, that James is dis, is especially addressing Jews who became Christians, people who had the Israelite, the 12 tribes, as their heritage. They, they were part of the family of Israel that they eventually believed in Christ. And, and I think we can see this 
especially from the fact, as I already mentioned, that there's a lot of biblical examples in uh, James, used from the Old Testament, which the Jews would have known very well. And, and James just, he states these as illustrations, as examples, assuming that they would know the backstories, assuming that they would know these people very, very well. Now, when James refers to these Jewish Christians in the dispersion, okay, I believe he's referring to a specific event, and it's a specific event that we actually have in the book of Acts, as Acts relays to us a dispersion or, or a scattering, which is what this, this word dispersion literally means, a scattering. Here's what we find in Acts. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, this takes place right after Stephen's stone. It says this, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So we have this word scattered twice here. And then later in Acts, in Acts 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So we have this word dispersion here in the book of Acts. And in our English translations, it's, it's translated as scattered, that they were scattered, they fled, they, they ran away from this persecution. So these are the Christians I believe James is writing to. Those who had previously lived in, in the city of Jerusalem, those who James would have probably known very well as being part of the church that he was a leader over, this is a letter then that we find is written to the persecuted to those that had to, to flee, to get out of their city because of the persecution that they experienced. But we see that they continue to serve the Lord and share his gospel. So James is writing to those who they're experiencing hardship and difficulty, those who did not have it easy, those who lived, lives have been uprooted and were most likely continuing, even in the lands that they had gone to, the cities that they went to, were continuing to be met with resistance. And as we think about these recipients and what they're facing, interestingly enough, what James says next, I believe, certainly connects in the next verse, in the, the next passage. He smoothly goes from addressing their present situation as scattered, as being dispersed because of their faith, being made to flee for their lives, and he goes to addressing hardships and difficulties and trials and how they're to respond to them. That's the first thing James addresses in this letter, experiencing hardships in life. So we see this first subject he, he deals with is not an unheard of subject to them, but it's a very personal subject for them. So he flows right from talking about their persecution, their hardships, uh, and who they are, to addressing that very thing, hardships and difficulties and how they should respond to them. So we'll move to the first passage in the book of James, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And I want us first to, to look at this topic, how he introduces it. If you look with me at James 1, verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers. And then this, this topic, this uh, subject he brings up, he says, 
when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials. He's talking about experiencing hardship in life, adversity, persecution, difficulties, suffering. And I, I want to point out two things from this statement when he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. I want to point out two, two things that I, I think helps us understand this topic a little bit better. The first is notice how James makes it a fact that hardship will come. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds, when you meet, when you face, James does not say, if you meet, or on the off chance that something bad happens, or this probably won't happen, but just in case it does. No, James speaks of these trials as a definite, as something that will happen. It's just a matter of time till it does. And I think this should be instructive to us as Christians. Trials, hardships, they tend to catch us off guard. They tend to surprise us. We might even say, I didn't see that coming. And in one sense, we can't know the future, so in one sense, they will catch us off guard, especially the specifics will surprise us. But we find here that trials in general, the fact that we will experience trials and hardships shouldn't surprise us. But we should expect them. We should anticipate them. When we face suffering, we shouldn't respond by thinking, okay, I didn't see that specifically coming, but God has warned me in his word that suffering is coming. We need to expect hardships in life. If we don't, and we're not listening to the word of God. So troubles are coming, and we see that from James's words, when you meet trials. And the second thing I want us to notice from this phrase is that James does not speak of one trial in specific. Okay, look again at, at this verse. In James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Of various kinds. Kind. So though they're experiencing persecution for their faith, James is talking about all sorts of struggles, all sorts of hardships that one may face in this statement. So certainly suffering that comes from your relationship with the Lord is included, being mocked and ridiculed because of your faith in Jesus Christ. But James's general way of speaking about trials includes things such as difficulties at your job, the loss of a loved one, Tragic accidents that take place, the stress of life, marital difficulties, difficulties with your children, experiencing sickness that you'll recover from and sickness that you won't recover from, the results of your sin or someone else's sin that impacts you, difficulties in having children, and the list could go on and on. Any trial you face is included here in what James is talking about. James's statement includes them all. And the reality with these two things that I pointed out shows that this text here of James 2 through 4, how James chooses to begin this letter of James, impacts each and every one of us. Trials are just a part of life. Most likely, if you just reflect over this last week, you've experienced a trial. Something that stressed you out. Something that really hurt. Something that made you cry. Something that totally altered your day. This passage, I believe, is instructive for us concerning our trials. Our many trials that we face in life. So James speaks of experiencing hardship. 
in many different ways in, in his focus in this passage. So that's, that's a topic, that's the subject that, that he's addressing, but his real focus is how should they respond to them? So you're experiencing all these trials, but how should you respond to them? What should your response be? Look with me at the beginning of James 1-2. He starts out with this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Their response is, he says, count it all joy, my brothers. So this response that James calls his readers to is one of perspective. Is one of perspective. It's calling them to look at their trials in a certain way. James is talking about how they view, how they think about these trials. We see this in the, in the beginning, the very first two words. He says, count it. Count it all joy. The word count means to consider, to regard, to look at. So the response James commands his readers to is primarily a mindset. It's not action, it's not words, it's not behavior, but how they think about something, how they view something, and, and certainly if they're thinking about it the right way, how they view it, it, it should lead to action, to words and behavior. But it begins with a perspective, an outlook on, how, on their hardships in their life. So we find that this perspective is that they should have great gladness when they encounter hardship in their life. Look with me again at verse 2. He says, count it, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James's command then is for these Christians to be glad, to rejoice when they face hardship. And by the word all, he says, count it all joy, he means with great joy with great gladness, that this is something that they are to be extremely joyful about. It's talking about joy to the highest degree, is what James is talking about here. And as we think about this joy that James calls them to as they face trials, I want us to consider what this isn't. This is not just putting a smile on your face. This is not talking about hiding your pain by acting happy, acting as if nothing is wrong. Rather, you still might be in very real pain or very real sadness that you might be experiencing, but your perspective and how you're viewing this situation is with, also with gladness. Your outlook is different than just putting a smile on your face. When you do that, you look happy on the outside, but on the inside, you can have inner turmoil. This command from James means there is something different going on inside you. Rather than turmoil, though you still might be hurt, there's gladness. The outlook on what is going on is one of joy. If I may be, if I may be so blunt by putting it this way, we are to be glad when hardships and difficulties enter our life. That's what James is saying. We are to be glad when hardships and difficulties enter our life. And just that statement is very unnatural, and it's very uncommon. Joy is not our natural reaction to hardship. Being glad is not the normal response when something tragic happens. It's usually that we're beyond upset. We usually see, if you think about hardships uh, happening throughout your week, usually you see them as a nuisance, a negative, something awful. We can't see how anything good can come from hardship. 
So what James is calling these Christians to may have surprised them. It may surprise us this morning, wondering how are we expected to meet our trials with joy? How could we be expected to view someone's death with joy? How could we be expected to be glad when our car breaks down? How could we be expected to rejoice when someone says extremely hurtful things about us? How could James say we should have this outlook on trials? Well, the question that I think needs, that needs to be asked is why? Why would we do this? Why is James saying we can have joy in trials? And before we consider that question, and it will... It, It'll move us into the, the last two verses of our text. I want to point out just one thing that might be easily skipped over, easily missed in verse 2. Look with me again at verse 2, and, and look at how he addresses his recipients. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers. He refers to them as brothers, speaking of the fact that they are family. They belong to the family of God. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's, the way, it's a way of referring to them that shows that he has a, a love, a special care and concern for them, just like one might have a special love and care for their biological brothers and sisters. It's a way of referring to them that is humble, showing he's one of them. Though he's a leader of the church, he is a child of God along with them. But the takeaway here from James calling them my brothers, because he's going to do this throughout the letter. But I think it's, it's especially helpful to, to see this in connection to what he's talking about, because what James commands, he commands them to be glad in hardship, what James commands them to do is hard. And even further, what he's telling them to do may seem insensitive. They might have been tempted to resist what James said and say, you don't know what I'm going through, James. You don't know the pain I'm enduring. You don't know how I feel. How could you be so uncaring to say, be glad, be joyful in your pain, in your torment, and in your sadness? By James calling them my brothers, it shows that he's saying this out of a care and a concern for them as they face what they face. He knows what they're experiencing, and he is calling them to respond in a God-honoring way. And I think this should be instructional to us when we face trials, when we suffer in some way to be willing to receive the instruction and the counsel of other Christians. We may not feel like hearing it. It may seem to contradict all that you're going through. But if they're giving wise, biblical counsel in a gentle way, then we should be willing to hear. We should realize their care for us as they are our brother and sister in Christ. They're looking out for our testimony. They're looking out for our spiritual well-being. James saying, my brother, shows that there is a sincere concern behind the words he says in this passage. Be willing to accept biblical truths from another Christian that may be hard to hear in your suffering. So James calls these Christians to count it all joy, to face hardship with gladness. And as I said, we need to ask the question, why? Why would we do this? Why should we have joy in trials? It's nice to know this response, but what's the reason? What's the reason behind it? Well, James gives the reason in verses 3 through 4 as he says, For you know that. 
For you know that. For is introducing the reason for why he would say this. And over these next two verses, he leads to the ultimate answer as to why these Christians should be glad when they face troubles. This comes, as I said, in verses 3 and 4. So in verse 3, as James heads to this reason, he begins by showing that hardships have a spiritual component. So he kind of builds. In these next two verses, he builds to get to this answer. And the first thing he says or the first thing we find is that hardships have a spiritual component. Look with me at James 1.3. It says, For you know that the testing of your faith, the testing of your faith, in verse 2, he used the word trials. And now he refers to these trials, these hardships, as a test, as a test of their faith, showing if they have faith or how much, they, how much faith they have in the Lord. The word testing communicates both a proving and an evidencing the faith that you have. But it also communicates the idea of strengthening. In 1 Peter 1, 6-7, it's the only other place that we find this word, this Greek word for testing. And it comes in verse 7. But it starts, the, the passage starts in verse 6, and Peter says this, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials can reveal to us, if we have faith at all, and second, how strong that faith is. In John 13, 36 through 37, a familiar passage, we see where Jesus' disciple Peter thought he was spiritually. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And many of us know that Peter goes on to deny that he was Jesus' disciple, and even further, he goes on to say he didn't even know the man. So a trial revealed where Peter was at. It showed that he was not willing to die or even follow Jesus. He was not as willing and as mature as he thought he was. And so too trials, this, this phrase, testing of your faith, brings out for us that they can be revealing to us and others as to where we're at in our faith. They can be revealing as to how great of a faith and trust we have in the Lord. They can reveal weaknesses that we have. They can reveal unaddressed sin in our lives that may only manifest itself in a specific hardship. So they prove the faith that you have, but also, as I said, they can strengthen your faith. We see this in this phrase, testing of the faith, and I think the rest of the passage shows us this strengthening. So next, as James moves to the reason for joy in trials, we find that endurance in hardship is built up over time. If you look with me at James 1.3, it says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is the ability to hold up in the midst of difficulty. We could substitute the words endurance and perseverance. Going through trials and hardships results in spiritual stamina to be able to withstand and and not buckle to the pressures when things get tough. Just like we saw with the example of Peter. 
He thought he was something, and, and when he started going through a trial, he, he buckled. He, he buckled to the pressures. But as we go through trials, as we go through hardships, what James is saying is that we will build up a spiritual stamina, become stronger in our faith and our trust in the Lord. And then we get the ultimate reason. And this comes in verse 4. The ultimate reason is hardship brings maturity in the faith. It brings godly character to our lives. Look with me at James 1, verse 4. It says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We find that steadfastness, this endurance, just being able to, to bear with suffering is not an end in, in and of itself. It's not the ultimate goal, but enduring. Bearing through trials will bring about a result, as it says at the beginning of verse 4, and let steadfastness, or endurance, have its full effect. And the effect, the result, is in the rest of the verse. It says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Meaning that going through trials, enduring hardship and difficulties, will lead to being perfect spiritually. The word perfect in our verse says that you may be perfect. It literally speaks of meeting the highest standard. The word complete says that you may be perfect and complete. This word complete speaks of being blameless, unblemished, without sin. And then the phrase lacking in nothing speaks of not falling short. So what, this, what we see in this verse is though we cannot be perfect until Christ returns, that this is to be our aim. We are to be striving and working towards this goal. So hardships will help us remove sin that still clings to us. It will help us realize and refine weaknesses and struggles as trials bring them out. We will grow in Christian character as we experience suffering in our lives. So now we can answer this question, why? Why would James call us to have joy in suffering? to view our hardships with gladness. And we find that it's because God has so ordained for our sufferings and our trials to mature us and grow us in our faith. God has so ordained that of all things, it be the hard things, the trials, the sufferings, to mature us and grow us in our faith. That is what James 1 verses 3 through 4 reveals to us. So we find that hardships are the tool with which God uses to strengthen our faith in him and root out sin in our lives. It is the tool that he uses to reveal sins that have gone unnoticed. It's the tool that he uses to sharpen our conduct, our words, our reactions, our emotions. And though this tool may hurt, though it may cause some pain and sometimes intense pain, we should view this tool expectantly. When it begins to dig and inflict pain, we should rejoice, asking ourselves, how will God use this to grow me? How will he use this to lead me to perfection? How will God mature me through this experience? Trials are like that gross-tasting cough medicine. And I think kids probably know what I mean. The liquid is hard to swallow. It's, it's quite unpleasant. But once it takes effect, the cough is gone. It's done its work, and the reward is relief. Trials, though they're unpleasant, though they can be extremely tough at times, 
and have an effect that makes a great impact upon our lives spiritually. This is why James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. It's because hardships are for the believer's benefit. Troubles in life are used by God to grow us in our trust in God and in Christian character. So will we find joy in our suffering? Will this be your perspective on trials? Tomorrow when your child throws up as you walk out the door. Tomorrow when your car gets backed into in the store parking lot. Tomorrow when you get devastating news. Tomorrow when you are beyond stressed. Tomorrow when you're discouraged by something someone says about you. Will you have joy? Will you in the midst of the hurt and the sadness be glad knowing that God uses these things for your spiritual well-being? Will you question not, how could you do this, God? But instead, how will you use this, God? How will you use this trial, God? That is the question that I want to leave us with this morning. A question with a different outlook than we naturally, naturally and normally have. A question that we should ask joyfully and expectantly. Asking how God will use this trial to mature me and grow me in my faith. How will you use this, God? Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this text. We thank you for this text that can be hard to hear, that certainly can be hard to live out. But Lord, I, I pray that as we experience trials and hardships, maybe some that aren't super big or, or super important, but just are a nuisance to us, Lord, or things that just totally alter our lives, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live out the message that uh, we found in the beginning of James, that we should find joy, that we should have gladness, uh, in these times, realizing that you have so ordained, you have planned that trials and hardships would be the tool with which you use to grow us closer to you, to grow us to be more like Christ. Lord, I pray that you would just strengthen us, that you would help us, that you would remind us when, when stress begins or when something bad happens, Lord, I pray that you would put it in our minds, that you would remind us of the joy that we should have, expectantly waiting and thinking and asking, how will you use this, God, in our lives to mature us and to grow us closer to you? Lord, help us to live out this text in our lives. And in your name I pray, amen.